Morning, Crosswalk. Thank you for being here. Um, it's always a, a pleasure, especially on a holiday weekend when you stop by church before all those other great things that you're going to do this weekend. And so thank you um, for being here. We've started off kind of every, every one, of these, um, one of these talks in this series by asking the question, where did you see a Christophany this week? And um, there are a few. There are a few. I think the first we need to recognize and honor is um, Irma Garcia and Eva Morales, teachers who literally sacrificed themselves for their students. Their stories should be told again and again. We shouldn't lose them in a news cycle that's too quick. We need to continue to think on them and pray for their families. The sickness that we all feel makes it hard for us at times to see Christ in a week like this. But in the darkness, a Christophany maybe becomes even more important. And we know that in times like this, there's this uproar of opinions, right? Of politics, of ideologies, defensiveness and aggression. I mean, I, I have some of those as well, certainly, I won't lie. And in the church, we have disagreements on a lot of things. But we can and should be able to disagree and still worship our God together. But I want to ask a couple of questions as we think about this week. The first question is a simple one. Where is Jesus? In a week with such tragedy, such bloodshed, untold violence, where is Jesus? And this is not just a question of theodicy, right? This is not just a theological question, although we can, we can go in and go deep. I can do a, a solid four hours today on just theodicy and how we justify God in the midst of this kind of suffering. But that's not really what I'm talking about. Literally, where is he? Because there are times when God seems absent. And we've all lived through times like that in our lives. They're difficult. They hurt. We long for comfort and truly we long for intervention. Where was God in this most recent murder of innocent children and teachers? Is he okay with it? Is he weeping with us? Really, shouldn't we be asking where he was leading up to this? I mean, there are so many questions and there's a lot of different answers. We've talked about some of them before. And I'm not gonna process all of this theologically today. I just want to affirm to you what I believe. First and foremost, I believe that God is not the author of suffering. I do not believe that God is responsible for what happened this week. I believe God is broken and breaking as we break and suffer. He is not absent, although we sometimes feel that he is. I believe that Jesus is in the heart of this tragedy. And it is a tragedy, let's be clear. It's not an accident. This was not a mistake. This was thoughtful murder. I didn't know any of them and I'm broken. I've cried through the articles that I've read. But I think about a God who knew each one of these children and these teachers intimately. And I can't imagine the pain that God is feeling right now. I do not believe that he absented himself from that community. I believe that he is in the midst of it. He is present and he is comfort in some way. And in this way, as he comes near to them, each and every classroom, each and every family member, each suffering sibling and parent is experiencing holy ground. 
Because where Jesus is present, the ground becomes holy. The ground becomes sacred. Every grain of sand, every tree or bush, every ventricle of the heart, every synapse of the mind as we suffer with Christ becomes sacred as it is attached to the holy God of heaven. And today we're talking about holy ground. And I gotta tell you, after last week's sermon, dealing with some of this and then Tuesday, I'm like, oh, what do we do? And then I go to the text that we're supposed to be preaching on and it's the story of the burning bush, which we all know, which does to me, I'm like, Lord, what, am, what did you do? Why did you put this one here? How does this at all connect with what we've experienced this week? I toyed with the idea of changing the text and I just got this sense that I was supposed to just, just linger here. So we're gonna study this text today. You know it. Right, it begins like this. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Some say he was the high priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. Now this was a long way from his home, just so you know, a long way from you know, synagogues and gathering places where, where God, you know, as we come together, God becomes, it just was a long way away from that. In fact, they say it was like 40 kilometers away from where Jethro was in, um, in Midian. And as you know, Moses had spent 40 years as part of the royal family in Egypt, a family that most considered sacred at the time. And then he spent another 40 years with Jethro and his family. And he had taken the absolute worst job in that whole situation, the job of a shepherd. It's boring. It's hot. It's way out in the middle of nowhere. You're camping and sheep are dumb. They are. They're just dumb. But then we see what happens, right? There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. And here's the Christophany, right? Here's the theophany. This is where God shows up. And we've heard this phrase before, the angel of the Lord. And I gotta tell you, it always rankled me because I always felt like God was showing up, but then they would say the angel of the Lord. And I wasn't really sure what to do with this. But as I continued to study this phrase, the angel of the Lord is actually what we call an apositional phrase. So for instance, sometimes we say the, sometimes we say the Euphrates River. But we also, and just as often, say the river Euphrates. That's an apositional phrase. So a better translation of the angel of the Lord is really the angel that is the Lord. That's what it means. And that helped me understand that God showed up in that bush. Whether he was taking the form of an angel, inhabiting an angel, we don't know. I have a tendency to believe that whenever God shows up in flesh, it is Jesus because that's how he enfleshes in this world. And so what happens? Moses says, man, this is amazing. Why isn't that bush burning up? I got to go see it. And we've seen this in the Christophanies before, right? People are always amazed at the way God presents himself. And I wonder, are we still amazed at the way that God presents himself to us? I mean, probably not. I don't know if we are in awe so much anymore. I mean, there's so much that we can see that, that, that creates a mystery and we know that there's technology behind it or there's trickery behind it. We have a tendency to not be amazed when God shows up. In fact, I, I think sometimes we don't even think that God might. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, said, Moses, Moses, here I am. 
When God shows up, you got to know there's usually a, a call. There's usually a connection. So God shows up and he says, Moses, where am I? How do you respond to the presence of God? Do you pray? Do you get on your knees? Do you raise your hands? How do you acknowledge that God is here with us? And what do you do when God calls your name? Because that's overwhelming. I mean, don't you think with the God of the universe would even know your name or call your name out? Does it amaze you that God knows your name? Tim, Tim, here I am, Lord. How am I supposed to respond? He knows my name, the God of the universe. He knows your name. He's on a first name basis with us. He knows other names too. Names like Alexandra, Ania Rubio, 10 years old. Alethea Ramirez, 10 years old. Amerigo Garcia, 10 years old. Annabel Guadalupe Rodriguez, 10 years old. Alejana Cruz Torres, 10 years old. Ellie Lugo Garcia, 10 years old. Eva Morales, 44, the teacher. Irma Garcia, 46 years old. Jackie Cesares, 10 years old. Jalia Nicole Seguero, 11 years old. JC Camilo Lovanas, 10 years old. Jose Flores Jr., 10 years old. Leila Salazar, 10 years old. Maite Juliana Rodriguez, 10 years old. McKenna Elrod, 10 years old. Miranda Mathis, 11. Nevea Brava, who, whose name spelled backwards is heaven, 10 years old. Rogelio Torres, 10 years old. Tess Mata, 10 years old. Zaya Garcia, 10 years old. Xavier Javier Lopez, 10 years old. He knew all their names. He knows all their names. We should know their names and remember them. And then God says something really interesting. He's shown up in an amazing way. He's acknowledged Moses. Moses had curiosity. And then he says this to Moses, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. The ground you are on is holy. Now, why was the ground holy? Because it's just rocks and dust and dirt. And why is it holy? It's holy because of the proximity of God. Because when God shows up, the ground, the bush, the fire, the rocks, they all become holy. And you have to deal with holy differently. That which is sacred, you handle in a different way. I remember growing up in an Adventist Christian school and, and you know, we, we didn't always keep our desks as clean as possible, but man, our teachers would get upset if the Bible was just jammed in there. They made sure that it was always on top of all the other books, which was fine with me. I had no reason for that math book that was in there. I was fine putting the Bible on top of it. And even one of our teachers, she wouldn't even let us put it in the desk. We had to keep our Bibles up on top of the desk because it was holy and we handled it differently. 
Now, I know that can get weird and that can become bibliolatry. We understand it's not the pages that are holy. It's the words within and the revelation of God that is holy. But we handle holy things different. What God makes holy, we handle differently. The Sabbath, we handle it differently because God hallowed it. He made it holy. Have you ever lifted up a newborn baby recognizing that that child is holy? It's sacred. When we dedicate a child, which we will do in our next service, we commit to the holiness of that child and to the call that God has given us to raise that child in close proximity with God so they may remain holy. We do this because they are gifts from God and as such, they are holy. So God says, don't you come any closer because you have to recognize the ground that you're on. And then he explains to Moses who he is. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he turned and covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at God, not only because of the power, but because of his goodness because of his greatness and his holiness, his sacredness that he was expressing and fully revealing to Moses at the time. Right, I wonder, we turn our heads from tragedy, right? When you're driving and you see an accident, you turn your head so you don't have to see it. And it feels like that's the way we live our lives, always turning our heads from tragedy because we see more of that than we see of holiness, than we see of peace, than we see of grace. And maybe we need to be part of a world that is creating so much goodness that people need to turn away from the goodness that they see, not just the tragedy that we experience. That's the kind of world I want to live in. That's the kind of world I'm committed to. But then the Lord told him, listen, I certainly have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because they're harsh slave drivers. Yeah, I'm aware of their suffering. And this is the divine knowledge that we talked about that happens with every Christophany. God knows something, that's why he's showing up. This knowledge that the people of Israel were suffering at the hands of a culture that was so violent, so terrible, that the people were crying out to be saved. So he says, listen, I've come. I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing. We've heard this a million times, right? With milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. God is making a promise here, right? He's promising them that they would turn, return to their original land, but it wouldn't be easy because that land is inhabited by people. And then he reiterates, look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me. And I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Again, reiterating that Israel was being abused by the Egyptians. And you know when we abuse people, right? We abuse people when we find them to be less than us, which turns into believing that they are less important, less worthy of love, and certainly less sacred. But God never shows up without a reason and he never shows up without a call. And so he gives a call to Moses and he says, now go for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. Moses, you have to go back and you have to lead them. So you're not just going back, but you're actually leading them. 
And that didn't seem to be Moses' strong suit. Since he left 40 years ago after killing that Egyptian, he knows that he was not necessarily welcome there and certainly not welcome to come back and lead a people out of Egypt. So Moses does what we all would do. He protests to God. He says, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? I'm a shepherd, man. I have no status. Why would they listen to me? And God says, because I'm going to be in proximity. I'm going to be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this very mountain. It's kind of fascinating that the sign is going to happen after he's already done it. You know, in the Old Testament, that happens quite a bit. The story of Gideon is the same way. Gideon, go raise an army. So he goes and raises an army, puts them all together. And then he asks the question about the fleece. Sometimes obedience is our first call. Whether it's a prophecy or premonition that God is giving him, it's an affirmation that weirdly would come after he had already done the leading and the following of God's call. And his calls just work that way sometimes. So Moses protests again. And he says, listen, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what am I supposed to tell them? And this is a real question. All right. The reason why he's asking this question is that the Israelites went into Egypt with favored status, right? With the story of Joseph that we know. But over generations, that obviously declined and they became slaves at this point of the story. Now, one of the things about the Egyptian religions, it was polyistic, it was pantheistic, but it was also really syncretistic. And that means it would engage other, other faiths into it as more people came into the Egyptian world. And what happened is they lost the name of God. Yahweh is not really used in scripture after Jacob's time. We don't really use it in the same way. And so when he asked the question, hey, what is your name? Who am I supposed to tell them is coming? What, what is that? It's a real and true question because the name of God wasn't used anymore. Yahweh was not used in the same way it had been before. And listen, names are important because names equal intimacy and proximity. Right? I have a name that I loathe. I'll tell you that. I just really can't stand it. And there's only four people in this world that can call me it and not have me be upset. And the name is Timmy. Right? I don't like it. And growing up, some people call me Timmy. Most people call me other things. Um, but sometimes they call me Timmy. But there, there were these four girls that I hung out with. They were all in the class above me. These four girls that I played with in, in our neighborhood. I had guys that I played with too. They didn't call me Timmy. That would be weird for some reason. They just called me Tim. But these four girls all called me Timmy. They called me Timmy my whole life. If I call them today, they will answer the phone like, Timmy, haven't heard from you for a while. I hate it. They can say it because we went through some stuff together as we were kids. <laughs> you can't call me that. They won't even call me Dr. Timmy, which I've asked. I got a friend named Dustin. And when you first get to know Dustin, you call him Dustin. And then as you get to know him a little bit more, you call him Dusty, right? <laughs> And then when you really get to know him, you call him Dust. That's what I call him. I was at his house, out in Chattanooga, actually. I was at his house uh, a couple months ago, and his wife goes, hey, D. And I was like, oh. There's more. I don't ever want to call him D. I don't think we need to know each other that carefully. 
Sometimes you change people's names due to their proximity. So when he asked for God's name, he wasn't just asking, hey, what's your name? He says, I need your name. I don't have it. Knowing God's name was a big deal. So Moses needed a name because that would give him position. He needed something to go and say, see, I was in the presence of the Most High. I was in the presence of God on sacred and holy ground. I stood on holy ground and I had a conversation with God. So God replies to Moses and he says, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here it is, by the way, probably the greatest assertion of divinity ever given by our sacred God. But let's give some context. Again, Egypt had a lot of gods, polytheistic, pantheistic, and syncretistic in its structure. So the re-revelation of the name of Yahweh having been lost is really important. The only problem is we've translated it in an appropriate way, but probably not the most accurate way. And I have a problem reading that text without hearing I am what I am, without hearing Popeye in it, right? A better translation of the term Yahweh is I cause to be. This name should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh's being the creator and sustainer of all that exists. And thus, he is the Lord of both creation and history, a God active and present in historical affairs and active and present today. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I've been around the whole time. I am your God and I cause it all to be. Everything that you see, everything that you breathe, everything that you walk upon, everything that you watch as you watch sheep, all of that I have caused. I am the God. There is no other God before me. There is no other God. God, I am the one, and that's who's sending you. And because I'm here, this is a holy call. God, active and present. And is God still active and present today? How is God active and present, especially when we live through another murder of innocence? By the way, Israelites lived through the murder of innocence as well when Pharaoh called that their firstborn sons, that all their sons, all the, all the males be killed. That's how the story of Moses begins. But if God is still active, if God is still present, the difference because we have Jesus is this, his proximity is personal. He doesn't show up on a mountain in a burning bush. He shows up particularly in you. Right? We think of God and we think of God the Father, God the, the sustainer, right? God that, the transcendent. But then when we think of Jesus, we think of Jesus proximal to us, right next to us. I'm making an argument for the Trinity on proximity here. God the Father up there, Jesus right here. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, this counselor and this guide, he is brought in even closer than your best friend, than your husband or your wife, than your children. He is brought from here to your heart. And that means if God is present in your heart. It means that you're holy. His proximity is personal now. A place where, the heart, a place where morality is changed. When God enters to our own personal space, we are confronted with who we are and with who he is, what we should do and what he would have us do in crisis and out of crisis. Our moral hearts, our sacred duty is made clear. And in that 
proximity into us, his holiness is palpable. As we listen to the proximity and presence of God in our lives, we're often called to things we never thought possible, maybe not even plausible. And sometimes God even changes our minds about the way we think of things. The nearer to God, the more our morality is formed. Our hearts are broken and mended. Our lives are to reflect this knowledge of God that we have. And this should lead us to something very particular. This should lead us to peace because peace is the presence of God. Ancient Hebrews called it shalom. Peace with God, peace with others, even peace with the earth. Peace is the ultimate end of the God who draws near to his people. And God has been drawing near to his people all throughout the Old Testament. Every covenant speaks to God drawing near to us, ultimately drawing himself into us through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And if we say that we're people who have Christ in our hearts, then we are not just peacekeepers, but we are peacemakers. And every tool that comes into our hands must be a tool of peace, a tool of grace, a tool of love, a tool of hope. And when we fill our lives with things that are not that, then we do damage to the idea that we are holy as Christ resides in us. So how are we adding to the peace in this world? And some of us don't feel that kind of peace necessarily. And so we have to ask God to draw nearer and nearer to us. See? 
bow our heads today. Heavenly Father, um, may we be those purveyors of peace, those brokers of hope, those that in the midst of this unyieldingly violent world seek hope, seek grace and give it as well. Lord, we know that as a nation, we are broken for the tragedy. But Lord, we know that as Christians, our call is to seek peace. So Lord, put the tools in our hands that bring peace, not chaos hope, not pain, grace, not anger. And may we recognize the holiness of each of us in each life. And may we shy away from anything that puts that in jeopardy. And Lord, we know that 
your coming. So we ask for that as well, Lord, quickly. But if you should wait a little bit longer, then Lord, we will answer the call. When you call our names, our own names, to step into this world, to lead in love, to show mercy and grace. Lord, we know that there are those who need more prayer than just what I do today. So Lord, may they know that they can come and pray with our prayer team in front as this service ends. And Lord, we thank you for the commitment that so many have made to this church week after week, month after month. It is a grace. But Lord, as we leave today seeking you, we ask that you be really present so that we are reminded on what holy ground we stand and how holy you have made our hearts. Pray this in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you and love well.